morning. This is Northern Light for Wednesday, December 27th. I'm Monica Sandreski. Todd is off this week. Teacher shortages continue in the North Country. That means logistical and financial strains for districts. It turns into a, a, a bidding war. You know, if, if I have a math opening and two other districts have a math opening, that person's probably going to go where they can make the most money. Also, after a string of high-profile deaths and disappearances, the Army is trying harder to find soldiers who fail to report for duty. Plus, Betsy Capis reviews the dystopian novel Moon of the Turning Leaves, and we join a murder in Plattsburgh. This fall, a few dozen people gathered on bikes, rollerblades, and scooters for the city's first crow ride. I think we've gone through a lot lately, and I, I think this event has no real purpose except for just having fun with each other. And I think sharing this community bond of doing this silly thing for no good reason, you know, like, and just for the, the fun of it. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Support for North Country Public Radio comes from Mountain Orthotic and Prosthetic Services, a full-service practice committed to providing care for patients of all ages with offices in Lake Placid, Plattsburgh, and Malone. Details and referrals at mountainonp.com. And by St. Lawrence Health, committed to keeping the community healthy and safe by providing vaccines for patients to strengthen their defenses. stlawrencehealthsystem.org. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. State police are investigating a trooper-involved shooting that took place in Franklin County Monday night. At around 10.30, police responded to the Loon Lake Mountain Trailhead on County Route 26 in the town of Franklin. They were there to check on the welfare of 46-year-old Jessica Chase of Plattsburgh, who was reported missing. Police say the troopers found Chase in her vehicle and that she was armed with a long gun. They say she failed to comply with commands and drove at the troopers. The officers shot at and struck Chase. Chase was taken to the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington with non-life-threatening injuries. She was listed in stable condition yesterday. State police ask anyone with information about the incident to call Troop B Communications at 518-873-2750. Staff and teacher shortages continue to plague school districts across the U.S. and here in the North Country. As education reporter Amy Fireizer reports, that's putting a logistical and financial strain on schools. According to a recent study by the National Center for Education Statistics, 86% of public schools report that they are still struggling to hire educators. They've been struggling since the fall of 2020 because of COVID-era retirements and fewer new teachers entering the field. Stan Majeka is the interim superintendent for the Shazy Central Rural School District in Clinton County. He says everyone is fighting for the same small pool of candidates. It turns into a, a, a bidding war. 
you know, if, if I have a math opening and two other districts have a math opening, that person's probably going to go where they can make the most money. That's driving starting teacher salaries way up, which is bad news for the North Country's rural, often poorer districts. When competing with a district outside the region, Majeka says the richer suburban or urban district almost always wins. Some districts have greater capacity to pay higher wages than other districts. That tracks with what the Education Statistics Survey found, which is that overall, poorer rural districts are having a harder time with hiring. Jennifer Gaffney is the Sackett's Harbor Superintendent in Jefferson County, which serves about 500 students. She has a science teacher retiring next May. We've already started our recruitment efforts now, uh, knowing that uh, science teachers coming out of institutions locally are few and far between. She says this new hiring world often has no options at all. I don't know if I'm going to even have one candidate to consider. And that is a very scary prospect. Stan Majeka says many North Country districts are already dealing with the reality of unfilled positions. You know, the quandary some districts are in, if you can't find a certified special ed teacher or a certified elementary teacher, somebody has to be in that classroom. It could be a, a, a teacher assistant. It could be somebody who is not certified to teach. And up here in this region, there's a lot of that. And inevitably, where there's a teacher shortage, there's a substitute shortage. Districts across the region are reporting smaller and smaller substitute rosters. Here in Shazie today, I have uh, two elementary classes where I I don't have uh, teachers. Now, the New York State Education Department is not unaware of these issues. Over the last three years, they've been relaxing their own rules, even reverting back to more generalized certifications, making it possible for teachers to teach more subjects. That's been very welcome for staff-strapped districts, says Dale Brealt, BOCI superintendent for 16 districts in Franklin, Essex, and Hamilton counties. Uh, oftentimes we think of bureaucracies who are entrenched in their ways and they dig in their heels. And I'm really proud of the work that our state ed department is doing to start to think outside of that box and saying, okay, we need to break this log jam. Just last month, the department released a whole bundle of proposals for feedback. The aim is to address the shortage by making it easier to become and stay an educator. For example, Brielt says one proposal would create a more streamlined path for teaching assistants to become teachers. So that's really smart because, again, if we have somebody who's proven to be really good in front of students as a teaching assistant, why would we not encourage them to you know, become teachers? One of the most radical proposals, according to Brialt, would allow districts to create their own teacher training programs as an alternative to a master's degree in education. Of course, for any of these proposals to take effect, NYSED would have to submit them to the Board of Regents for approval and a public comment process. But Brialt says the proposals signal a real shift in thinking. Stan Majeka, the interim superintendent in Shazie, says the NYSED proposals might help with the shortage, but that there's a bigger problem, making teaching attractive again. You know, that person has to want to enter the, the, the teaching force. Teaching salaries are low compared to private sector jobs. And these days, the promise of a state pension isn't so promising. The state has reduced retirement benefits for public employees, and new teachers have to work until they're 63 instead of 55. It's a diminished uh, retirement benefit, and I I think that has impacted uh, individuals' uh, willingness to come into the profession. 
With fewer teachers in the pool, the long story short is this. North Country districts are having a harder and harder time hiring. They're paying more for new teachers and yet still are contending with teacherless classrooms. Amy Feierisel, North Country Public Radio. charged with making policy recommendations to cut child poverty statewide in half by 2031 has announced its agenda for, agenda for the next year. Plans for the New York State Child Poverty Reduction Council include getting input on proposals and poli- uh, policy packages through a series of public meetings. Peter Nabozny from the Children's Agenda in Rochester is a council member. He says it's important the public is given the chance to weigh in on the challenges people face accessing benefits. We could fix on paper the policy, but if the challenge is um, understaffing in um, offices all over the state or the burdensome nature of paperwork, well, then the policy we're <clears throat> the policy lever we're aiming to push on is only going to have such you know a limited effect. Nabozny would like to see the final recommendations from the council done faster than the council's 2024 agenda proposals. This council has the ability to really weigh in on what Governor Hochul proposes next year. Um, and, you know, if if the timeline gets pushed off because of things and we end up voting on recommendations at this time next year, it becomes very difficult for it to become a substantial part of the executive budget. The council says to reach its goal, the state must reduce poverty by an additional 43% in less than a decade. The group plans a series of public hearings in 2024 to help craft its final policy recommendations. St. Lawrence County is getting a second family court judge. Governor Kathy Hochul on Friday signed a bill creating the new judgeship and 20 others throughout the state. The goal is to help reduce a big backlog of cases created during COVID-related court shutdowns. The new St. Lawrence County family judge will be elected next November. That person's term will start in January 2025. The Army is trying harder to find soldiers who fail to report for duty. A string of high-profile deaths and disappearances prompted the service to overhaul its policies on troops who go missing. But critics say the Army is still too likely to write off soldiers as AWOL, absent without leave, and stop looking for them. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. While stationed at Utah's Dugway Proving Ground in 2011, Army Specialist Joseph Bushling disappeared while on a long drive in the desert. Though the vehicle and some of Joseph's personal items were recovered, he's never been found. His father, Kevin Bushling, says the Army did a sloppy investigation and communicated poorly with the family. Bushling adds the Army was quick to dismiss his concerns about possible foul play and instead quickly concluded that Joseph had died by suicide. That's where they were saying, oh, he was despondent over his divorce, so he went out and committed suicide. They weren't willing to listen to anything else. I mean, when when I was trying everything I could to try and keep them interested. Bushling says the Army listed Joseph as AWOL, or absent without leave. Bushling was asked to collect his son's belongings from his on-base apartment, and a sergeant even gave him an award meant for soldiers when they leave the base. He says, you know, this is what we give to the soldiers. Joseph always did a good job, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I'm thinking at the time, he's given me these awards because he doesn't plan on seeing Joseph ever again. So this guy's already given up that Joseph could possibly be alive somewhere. This is like nine days after he went missing. The Bushlings are among several families who say the Army didn't do enough to find soldiers after they went missing. 
Among the most prominent cases was that of Specialist Vanessa Guillen, who disappeared from Fort Hood in 2020. The Army listed her as AWOL, but she was later found murdered. After Guillen's death attracted national scrutiny, the Army changed its approach to missing soldiers. Its new policy lays out a search framework for the soldiers' unit, Army investigators, and base emergency services, and tries to improve communication with next of kin. General Dwayne Miller is the Army Provost Marshal. Everybody coalesces around trying to find our teammate and where he or she could be out there. Uh, And that's soldiers going out looking for him. That's local police departments. Some of our federal agency partners, you know, be able to track cell phone usage. Uh, I think this has really helped in a lot of ways. The Army also created a temporary duty status called Absent Unknown, which it can assign to soldiers for up to 48 hours while it tries to determine why they failed to show up for duty. Most soldiers, Miller says, disappear because of stress, personal problems, or logistical concerns. And the Army has found many of them. Unit commanders and and all the leadership look at this as a military operation to try to find their missing friend. But former Army MP Maggie Haswell, founder of the group Warriors Aftermath and Recovery, says soldiers might still fall through the cracks if they're victims of foul play or accidents. She says the Army's new policy puts more pressure on commanders to be proactive, but they're not given enough guidance about how to decide if a soldier's absence is voluntary or not. So they may still label soldiers AWOL without enough proof. AWOL has always had a negative connotation to it. Most people, when they hear AWOL, they're like, oh, he left on his own. We don't care. After 30 days, AWOL soldiers get listed as deserters, meaning the Army can drop them from its roles. Haswell says that lowers the incentive to continue the investigation. She says coordination between military and civilian law enforcement often falls short, too. It's all about jurisdiction. And the communication between the two is just almost non-existent. And so you end up getting runaround, which usually lasts for days. Meanwhile, Miller, the provost marshal, says the service branch investigates all disappearances thoroughly, even if soldiers are labeled AWOL. The Army created a cold case unit in 2022 to solve cases of soldiers who have been killed or gone missing for years. Specialist Joseph Bushling is still classified as a missing person by the Army, which is offering reward money for credible information concerning his disappearance. This is Carson Frame reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's about quarter after eight. Good morning. I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, Betsy Capis reviews the dystopian novel Moon of the Turning Leaves. That's coming up in just a few minutes right here on Northern Light, which is supported by Blue Seed Studios, a multidisciplinary art center featuring classes for adults and youth, concerts, art exhibits, and more. BLUSeedStudios.org and by Fort de la Presentacion, home of the Abbey Piquet Walking Trail, open seven days a week from sunrise to sunset, fort1749.org. Music now by Tim Elifritz out of Johnsburg.
Here on Northern Light, we are pretty into birds. Can't get enough of them. Bird note, bird watchers. Gosh, sometimes you just want to be a bird. I know Todd wants to be reincarnated as a loon after he dies. For some folks in Plattsburgh, they want to be crows. This fall, a few dozen people gathered on bikes, rollerblades, and scooters to become a murder of their own. In one of our favorite stories from 2023, Kara Chapman takes us along for the city's first crow ride. It's a gloomy and starless night. I find Kimberly Cummins biking around the local farmer's market parking lot. (laughs) How's it going? I'm good. How are you? She's wearing a dark helmet and a black hoodie. It's got felt wings and wingtips attached. And then my bike is decorated with different lights that are like kind of sparkly because since I'm wearing a lot of black to try to look like a crow, I want to try to make myself as visible as possible at the same time. Cummins is the organizer of tonight's crow ride. It sounds just like what it is. A bunch of people dress up as crows, ride around, and make some noise. It's the first Plattsburgh has ever had. Cummins says she loves crows. They're clever, adaptable, ingenious, she says. And she's done a crow ride before, over in Burlington. It reminded me of, you know, like when you're a little kid and you're riding to your friend's house and you're kind of just goofing around and having a good time. And that's what she's hoping people get out of tonight's ride. I think we've gone through a lot lately, and I I think this event has no real purpose except for just having fun with each other. And I think sharing this community bond of doing this silly thing for no good reason, you know, like, and just for the the fun of it. Can I get your best caw? Oh, uh, caw! Caw! (laughs) Caw! That's fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) As we talk, the next crow shows up. You have lights too! Hey, fellow crow! Lauren Zito wears a black feathered masquerade mask and a black tracksuit. She says this kind of thing matches her vibe. She was drawn in by how mysterious it was. Serious, and there was no sort of overreaching, like, why are we doing this? And the answer was, like, because we can. Zito also says she needs to call it the night tonight. Her hometown is Lewiston, Maine, where 18 people died in a mass shooting in October. No, tonight I need to come out, deck my bike out with whatever, and see what happens. So kind of calling for Lewiston in a way. Yes, yes. Zito says we can't live in fear. And as more crows wheel in... Creatures of the night, let us ride! It's easy to forget that fear. Laughter, whimsy, and joy take over. And even some non-human voices join in. Are those real crows? Yeah, I think so. Oh, nice. They're coming! Rylan McKay of Plattsburgh is here with her daughter, Evelyn. I'm wearing a black bat hoodie, but I'm just saying it's a crow because it's the only cool winged thing I have. Rylan says this kind of thing is right up their alley. They used to go to Burning Man as a family when they lived on the West Coast. We love dressing up and having fun. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Soon, it's time for the safety talk. All right, my little crows, come on in! Cummins goes over the rules. Obey the stop signs, go slow, respect pedestrians and drivers. Then she leads her flock into the heart of downtown. One crow is on rollerblades and has these big black retractable wings. Andy Alger says it took about 12 hours to attach all the feathers. I'm hoping it looks like I'm flying when I actually skate. (laughs) Alger merges with the murder as it rides past. The crows make their way uptown towards SUNY Plattsburgh. By the time they wind around Hawkins Pond, they're about 40 strong. Cummins has them line up for a picture. 
someone hands me a phone. Okay, woohoo! Awesome. Then Cummins gives the signal. All right, let's go, bro! And once again, they set off into the night. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio, Plattsburgh. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Monica Sandresky. It's about 20 after 8. Good morning. Coming up, we've got a book review from Betsy Capus. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note. Coming up at 8.42. By late January, some resident birds, like the Northern Mockingbird, are beginning their spring singing. Why some birds sing in the wintertime? We'll find out more at 8.42. But first, got to take a look at the weather. At last check, it was 46 degrees in Watertown, 39 degrees in Chateaugay, 39 in Queensbury. We can expect foggy skies for a while and a light rain, even a wintry mix sort of in the northern Adirondacks, but really not too chilly out. Pretty mild. Temperatures in the uh, in the 40s expected today for much of the region. Overnight tonight, not even getting down to freezing. Uh, lows in the upper 30s expected, but rain is likely to continue for the next couple of days. Highs in the mid-40s tomorrow for much of the region. And uh, on Friday, pretty cloudy with highs in the mid-40s. And maybe a wintry mix as we head into Saturday, but still pretty warm with highs in the 40s expected. Novelist Wabashig Rice writes dystopian fiction for a uh, where a continent-wide apocalypse has destroyed much of humanity, but a small group of native people in northern Ontario have survived. Our book reviewer, Betsy Capus, talked with our Todd Moe about Rice's new novel, Moon of the Turning Leaves. Todd, Rice introduced his dystopia in his 2018 novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow, which was a bestseller in Canada. In that book, after the power went off in North America, everything was chaos. Fortunately, the Anishinaabe people in a village in the far north of Ontario were spared the worst of the disaster, but not all. At the end of that book, four families from that community packed up and headed out into the bush to begin again. Hmm. And so is that where the new novel begins? No. It begins 12 years later when the community's well-established. They've managed to survive in shelters made of wood and covered in plastic tarps. But the fish are getting scarce in their lake and game animals are harder to find. So the community decides they'll send a scouting party of six people south, hoping to get to their traditional lands on Georgian Bay on Lake Huron. And what do they expect to find? It's interesting. They have no idea. (laughs) Two young men from their community left four years earlier and never returned. So there's been a little disaster there. Um, They haven't had any contact with anyone outside their 40-person community since they left their village 12 years ago. Okay, but since this is a dystopian novel, I can guess that they're going to find some horrors along the journey when they arrive. You're right. Um, But it's interesting. It takes a while. Uh, On their first 20 days of walking south, it's almost idyllic. 
except for the destroyed towns they walk through. The woods are intact with fish and game to keep them well-fed, berries. It's beautiful. So then what happens after 20 days? Well, TJ, the oldest of the group, breaks his leg badly. Wow. Well, having... Suffered a broken ankle, I can say that's that's not good. No, it's not good, especially since that's how they're transporting themselves. Right. So I don't want to spoil anything, um, but they keep going, and there is a positive contact with some survivors, but also a very negative contact with survivors, mm-hmm. a militia group called the Disciples. They're a whites-only group who worship the gun, and the last 80 pages of this book are very exciting with gunfights and even some bow and arrow attacks. It sounds like this isn't the first dystopian book you've read. No, you're right. I've read lots of them. They yeah. are their own kind of fun in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is the first time um, with Rice's books that I've ever read dystopia from a native perspective. Um, his characters in some ways are more equipped to survive as they still have some elders who remember the old ways of living without food and electricity brought in from the South. I also enjoyed the way the characters joked with each other, even when times were tough. And Rice writes small details about his characters' lives, like combing their long hair with a fish spine comb before braiding it. Mm. So do you have a favorite character? I would. Of the six that take the journey, I think I really enjoyed learning about this 15-year-old girl, Nangans. She's really comfortable in this post-apocalypse way of living and loves being in the woods. Here she is after she's killed a buck with a modern bow and a synthetic arrow. Walking up to the animal slowly, Nangans dug in her pocket for her tobacco pouch. She stopped just a step from the deer and gazed across its hefty frame. Its eyes bulged into nothingness, and its tongue lay in the dirt. It could no longer taste. It was a fully grown adult, and it would feed them for weeks. Feeling proud and thankful, she opened her small deer hide satchel to take some sema into her left palm. She squeezed her fingers firmly over the dried brown leaves, harvested from their own community garden the fall before. They crumbled into the creases in her palm, and she closed her eyes to whisper a prayer of gratitude. It really does sound like such a timeless scene. It really does, but I did find myself wondering if teen girls hunted in the old times. Um, Nangans practices constantly to become a better hunter, but she's young enough that she doesn't remember the brutal time before they left their village at the beginning of the apocalypse. When Nangans asks her mother to tell her what that time was like, her mother says, We don't need to talk about the evil because it's not here anymore. But then they are walking toward evil as they head south. Yes, they are, and Nangans has to grow up really quickly. Okay, I'm going to ask this question, Betsy, though I know you won't tell me. Do they do they make it to Georgian Bay, and if so, what do they find there? You're right, Todd. you got to read the book. Yeah. Uh, no spoilers. I can say that two of the six who begin the journey die. And I think I can also reveal that there are still some good people left in this world. Well, that's encouraging. Thanks for coming in, Betsy. My pleasure. 
That was book reviewer Betsy Capis talking with Todd Moe. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 828. I'm Monica Sandresky. And as we go out, I wanted to play a little bit of music uh, that came out of the North Country this year as we head into the tw- into 2023 and ring in the new year. A little bit of music from Ursa Minor and the Major Key. These guys are out of Plattsburgh. And they're actually performing at the Monopole on Sunday night to ring in the new year. This is their 2023 song, All I Want Is Your Love.